Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. A little bit of a confession this morning before we get started. I really, really, really want to continue our study in 1 Corinthians. But as you know, last week... Um, I, I sort of talked about a few other things. And what I'm trying to do is lay a proper foundation for you to understand where we're headed. So I believe with all my heart that there are two really uh, huge factions in the what we would consider to be the Protestant evangelical church today. And so what we're doing is we're leading up to that. Why are there such different understandings of what the gifts of the Spirit are, and and why uh, do we find ourselves sort of in that predicament? And so what I'm going to do is today and next week kind of lay a bit of a foundation so that as we move on in 1 Corinthians, we'll have a, a foundation of understanding that'll help us. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, good. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the apostles' doctrine. We're going we're gonna, to uh, really do a survey of that and a little bit of church history as well, um, kind of some a Cliff's Notes version of church history. Uh, if you would, turn to Proverbs 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29, 18. Now, obviously, this is Old Testament. It was written originally in Hebrew. And... Um, but it's a very specific and important principle that the body of Christ needs to understand. Proverbs 29, 18. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Proverbs 29, 18. This is the Word of God. Where there is no vision, the people are without restraint. But happy and blessed is he who keeps the law. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our minds and our hearts today to the truth of your word, Lord Jesus, and that you would give us the courage and the will, Father, to honor you in aligning our lives uh, according to Scripture, Lord, and nothing else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So how does this verse then flesh itself out in the world where there is no vision? And that word vision means no revelation of God's Word, no divine revelation of instruction. So where there is no divine revelation of God's instruction, the people are without restraint. And then it says, but happy is the man, or happy and blessed is he who keeps the law, which is the instruction of God, okay? Um, how do we see this flesh out in Scripture in, in humanity's past? Well, Let's look at a few Bible verses. In Genesis chapter 6, so Genesis 6, 5 through 6, uh, this was in the days of Noah. It says, The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of the hearts was only evil continually. I don't know how you can get much worse than that. Verse 11 says that humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. So where there is no divine instruction from God, the people are unrestrained. Judges 21-25 says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
And we see this same type of behavior and judgment of God in the New Testament. Obviously, I preached on it a few times. You can mark Romans 1 and go back there often. If you ever wonder what in the world is going on in the United States of America, go back to Romans 1 and review it, and you will understand why we are seeing the judgment of God revealing itself against a nation that has abandoned the principles of God. Okay, Any nation that abandons God's instruction soon becomes unrestrained or depraved, uh, and they have gone their own way, a corrupted way, the Bible says. Uh, you know the verse, you've probably heard it mentioned several times, that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is destruction. There's a way that seems right, but the end is destruction, and that's why we cannot lean on our own understanding. We have to trust God and God's ways. Remember we learned about Balaam last week in Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum. And Christ said that he, he was exhorting them, telling them that there are some in your church who, have, uh, who, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, right? So Balaam had gone off course and he's saying those in your church are also doing what Balaam did. They've gone the way of the Nicolaitans as well. And if you read in the book of Jude, Jude describes these false teachers who have, quote, poured themselves into the error of Balaam, all right? So again, we see this, this uh, person, Balaam, over and over pointing to the fact that this was someone who had gone astray from God's way. So to go your own way, to veer away from the Lord's instruction, causes an eventual downfall. If you don't understand that about the world, if you don't understand that about humanity, if you don't understand that about yourself, that you are bent towards destruction and you need Christ every single day to keep you in the way of righteousness, then this is something that you really need to listen to this morning. Amen? All right. Because things begin to get out of control. They become unrestrained. Now, I, I have a picture here that kind of illustrates the Hebrew word, what it means to be unrestrained. As I said, it literally means out of control. But as you know, uh, water flows across the soil. There, if there's nothing stopping or constraining its flow, water will take its own way. It will take the path of least resist resistance. And it spreads out, and as it spreads out, the flow is weakened until it eventually stops altogether. And being unrestrained has the exact same results among the people of God in the church. When we lay aside our divine standard, that very same thing takes place. No divine standard leads a people to become unrestrained. Is that a big deal? Absolutely it's a big deal, especially in the house of God. To be unrestrained is to take the path of least resistance. To be unrestrained means that there is no accountability or very little. To be unrestrained means there is a loss of true spiritual power. To be unrestrained means we are veering away from God's stated purpose, which is the gospel for the body of Christ. To be unrestrained means there is no gospel clarity. It all gets muddled. And to be unrestrained means that truth becomes experiential. An experiential truth with no standard to judge it by means we just have to take a person's word for it. If they say it's true, then apparently it's true. I'm not good with that. 
all right? And this leaves you with a subjective truth to the point that it cannot be trusted as truth. It's no longer truth. Now, when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, 1 Timothy 3.15, there Paul makes it clear to Timothy what the divine purpose of the church is. This is our mandate from God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says this, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Do you want to know what the church is supposed to be like? I'm going to tell you in my letter. This is what it's all about. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is how you are supposed to conduct yourself. And he says, which is the church of the living God. These are not idols. This is not a dead God made of wood or stone or clay or whatever. This is the church of the living God. And he says, you are the pillar and support of the truth by common confession. The pillar and support of of the truth. We as the body of Christ, that is our mandate. We are in the world the pillar and support of the truth. Do you understand? Not only that, but we as the body of Christ are supposed to agree. We're supposed to have a common confession. All right? Uh, we are commissioned to adhere to a common confession of faith, just as Jude said, the faith that's once for all handed down to the saints. There's a belief system that was handed down to the saints that you and I are supposed to adhere to. Common confession is absolutely impossible without a standard. All right? And common confession is also impossible when everyone claims to have their own private direct revelation from God. As we learned a few weeks back, only God's chosen men had direct revelation and they were accompanied with signs, miracles, and wonders. We learned that they had a common confession in the early church before they actually held a completed Bible or canon in their hands. And here's what their standard was. And this, again, is uh, bullet points. It's not by no means uh, an exhaustive example. But their standard was the Old Testament. So all that Jesus had fulfilled in the Old Testament scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, the Apostles' testimonies concerning Jesus what he said and did. They were witnesses to his power, that he was in fact the Son of God. New revelation under the authority of the first century apostles and prophets, as I said, accompanied by miraculous signs, in order to validate that what was being spoken was in fact from God. Amen? And then the inspired letters being written by the apostles accepted and circulated among all the local churches. So when a church received a letter from Paul, it didn't always mean that that, that that letter was going to be inspired, but somehow they knew the difference. It was the Holy Spirit that allowed them to know which ones were inspired and which ones weren't, and that's what comprise, uh, comprises our canon of Scripture. And then the letters, uh, the eyewitness accounts under divinely inspired influence, eventually comprised, as I said, the Gospels, the Epistles, and then later with the addition of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the canon, the Bible, was closed. And we had the faith delivered to the saints. The word describing what that doctrine, that common confession was, is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. Now, growing up, uh, Chris and I were talking about this. She said orthodoxy was 
like a dirty word, okay? That idea, it was like it was like just an old dead religion when you use the word orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is not a naughty word. Orthodoxy is not a man-made religious system. In fact, it's just the opposite. Orthodoxy is our common confession. It is the authorized, accepted doctrine and practice of the historical church as the Bible dictates. All right? That is what orthodoxy is. All the things that those Christians throughout history believed, the faithful ones to God's word, and the same doctrine that they would not stop believing even when people told them, recant and deny your faith, deny what you believe, or we're going to march you in front of the whole town and we're going to burn you at the stake. That orthodoxy, the orthodoxy that they did not recant, the ones that allowed themselves to be chained to a pole and burned at the stake, it's that orthodoxy we're talking about. Are, are you telling me we're just supposed to throw that out? The faith that our, our uh, forefathers in the faith died for and paid such remarkable uh, prices for, they chose to burn at the stake. And for that in which they believed, that was orthodoxy. I will go a step further, uh, a step further and say that we believe in proto-orthodoxy. Proto-orthodoxy, and what do I mean by that? Well, the word, uh, the prefix "proto" means first, and we, we as a body of believers, seek the authorized common confession and accepted doctrine and practices that came at the very beginning of the church. Understanding how to differentiate between the temporary signs of the apostolic age and the permanent signs for the purpose of edifying the church today, we hold to the things Jesus and the apostles taught. And we have to understand the things that were descriptive and a historical account of what Jesus did and what the apostles did and what are prescriptive, meaning they're prescribed for us to do, to go and spread the gospel and make disciples. And we have to study to know the difference between the two. If you turn to Matthew 16, 15 through 18, if you want to, Matthew 16, 15 through 18, this passage is so vital to understand. Matthew 16, 15 says, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, Matthew 16, 18, and he says, And I also say to you that you are Petros. You are a stone, a tiny pebble. And he's addressing Peter. But he says, Upon this Petra, a foundational rock, uses two different words. He says, I will build my church in the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is establishing that revelation of divine truth does not come from flesh and blood from a man, right? He's, and, he, and he makes it very clear, you're just a pebble, Peter, you're just a man. And that, didn't, that revelation didn't come from you, it came from my Father. Revelation of divine truth comes from the Father through the Spirit and testifies about the Son, Jesus, and that revelation is a foundational rock for the church. Once the scriptures were completed, God's word became the standard of truth for God's people, who then are the support and pillar of 
the truth. We are supposed to hold up God's word. In Galatians chapter 1, 11 and 12, Galatians 1, 11 and 12, Paul says, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we believe that there were several occurrences in which Paul encountered the risen Christ, which qualified him as an apostle. That's one of the things that you had to check off your list if you were going to be a legitimate apostle, was that you had uh, had an encounter with the risen Christ. Okay, In 2 Peter 1.20... Paul echo or Peter echoes this truth, 2 Peter 1.20. He says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. And that word interpretation actually means, would be closer to mean invention or inspiration. It doesn't come from man. Man does not contrive the, the prophecy or the proclaimed divine revelation of God. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see how it's making things very clear that the revelation of God's word came from God and not from man. And Peter also confirms again over and over, divine revelation is from God, not men. So we have two of the apostles there confirming the same thing. Jesus, um, so their standard of divine Okay, sorry. Uh, for instance, the Catholic Church claims to be the one and only true church. They claim that they are the source of all Christian orthodoxy. Their standard of divine revelation is traced through the lineage of the papacy, and obviously, which is flesh and blood, isn't it? And they say in the past, uh, they say in the passage that we read a few minutes ago that Jesus made Peter the first pope. That, that that account that we just read was Jesus telling Peter, uh, upon this rock I will build my church, that it meant that Jesus was going to build his church upon Peter. And Peter was the first pope. This, of course, was a devastating error because it shifted the revelation of God's divine truth from what is a Holy Spirit-authored biblical standard over to a fallible, malleable, imperfect standard of men. Do y'all understand? All right. So, the true faith is the accepted and common confession of the apostles and the first century church, and it predates all denominations. What's interesting is if you look at that picture of the tributaries, and then you look at a graph of the, uh, all the different denominations that were created, they look very, very similar in how they spread out and, and just have become all uh, a whole bunch of different fractured tributaries of denominational belief. But that's one of the reasons why we call ourselves a Bible church, why we wanted to be clear about what our foundation was. We believe that the Bible is God's revealed word to man, and it is the source of all truth that was given by God himself. It is perfect. It does not have one single error. And as Peter states in 2 Peter 1.3, it is all we need for life and godliness as true believers in Christ. If you need it in your life in, in, to be a faithful follower of Christ, you can find it in God's Word. So God's Word, a testament of Jesus Christ, was given by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and prophets, and that is the, 
direct revelation upon which Christ has built His church. And so, this is where the rubber meets the road. If you truly believe that about God's Word, if you believe that with all of your being, your being knowing that the Bible is God's very Word, divinely inspired, and He gave it to us Himself, it alone contains the truth that offers salvation, eternal salvation for millions of people. If that's what you believe about God's Word, shouldn't we take the utmost care in interpreting it and in protecting it so that the gospel message would be clearly proclaimed to the world? To do otherwise is to, not, uh, is to deny those folks the truth that would lead them to eternal life. That's why it's a big deal. That's why I'm so serious about it. In addition, if every Christian was supposed to receive divine revelation from God, if God was going to speak to us directly, shouldn't we be able to find that very clearly stated in Scripture? Shouldn't we be able to turn to one of the epistles and there Peter or Paul or someone would have given us clear and definitive explanation and instruction in how to hear from God? I can't find it. And I've asked people to show me, and nobody can show me anywhere in Scripture where you and I are supposed to have divine revelation from God. And the belief of so many that there's another source of divine revelation other than God's Word actually diminishes God's Word, and it elevates the human experience as truth. And there's no way to know whether someone's speaking the truth or not. But when we hold God's Word in our hands, we know that's truth. We know it's truth. It causes Christians, though, to dismiss the Bible, to lay it aside, to ignore various verses, particular passages, and sometimes ignore entire books of the Bible. And some, um, you know, even recently, like uh, Andy Stanley saying, it's time to unhitch from the Old Testament, that the Old Testament isn't even necessary anymore. But we know Christ refutes that, in, in saying that the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, testifies to Him. That you can go to the Old Testament and see Christ all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. I'm not going to unhitch from that, are you? <laughs> if that's how we operate, how can there possibly be a standard? How can we have a common confession of the faith as the body of Christ? Having no static, resolved, concrete standard gives way to a myriad of differing opinions, doctrinal variants, and theological tributaries. Most Christians would say that God's Word is their standard. Never met a preacher that said, No, I don't really use the Bible. I use, uh, I use uh, you know, the dictionary or the encyclopedia. Never met a preacher that said that. Every preacher I've ever met says, We teach the Word of God. That's all fine and good. But the question is, the problem is, honestly, is their interpretation. What is your method of interpretation? You can say all you want that you believe God's Word is absolute truth, but it's just lip service if you have no proper standard of interpreting God's Word. Because where there's no proper standard of interpretation, no, no uh, divine vision in how to interpret it, Doctrine itself becomes unrestrained. It gets out of control. People start making stuff up and believing all kinds of crazy stuff. When you want to keep running water from taking the path of least resistance, 
you build a channel with concrete like a canal and there's a designated barrier to channel the water and we are commanded in 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul tells Timothy be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth it is your job it is your responsibility to accurately handle the word of truth we must take great care in interpreting the word of God so proper biblical interpretation requires that there be a standard for studying and interpreting scripture similar to what I just showed you in that picture those concrete walls in that canal proper interpretation is a designated barrier or keeps uh, truth very clearly outlined this standard or discipline is called a hermeneutic and I'm, I'm using big words this morning but you guys I think you can handle it it's called a hermeneutic um, and we use what is called a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic which simply means we believe that when God gave his revelation he he intended for his words to be taken at face value using a plain sense approach to interpretation so follow me just for a moment early on in church history the leadership in the church over time abandoned a proper biblical hermeneutic. In 1515 AD, Martin Luther rejected the erroneous fourfold hermeneutic that led to some very far-fetched allegorization of scripture. Like it just became this weird thing out and you know like there was really no defined truth there. It just became allegorical. And, uh, and that was then promoted by the Catholic Church. They believed that scriptural interpretation should be left in the hands of the experts. Only the, only the, uh, they took up all the copies that there were, uh, the very few that there were, and only the leaders in the church had copies of scripture. And only they were qualified to figure out what scripture actually meant, and everybody, the masses, just had to take their word for it. Okay? The scripture didn't always mean what they uh, what the scriptures said. In other words, it says something plainly. Oh, well, that's not what it means. All right. It, it, I know it says that, but that's not what it means. And that's how they uh, that's the hermeneutic they used. There were allegorical meanings uh, behind the words, and this led, quite frankly, to some very dark times. And the church establishment power was abused, people were manipulated, the masses were controlled by fear and guilt, they were taken advantage of for the sake of the Catholic leaders gaining more wealth and power, and this abuse would eventually lead to the great Protestant Reformation, which was a hermeneutically driven struggle to return the church back to the original apostles' doctrine, to use a clear and precise Hermeneutic in order to return the church back to the truth of God's word. And Luther proposed this grammatical historical hermeneutic, which was actually, as I said, just recovering the original hermeneutic of the early church. And the premise was very simple, very simple. Each Bible passage only has one meaning. It was historical in that it connected to the events and culture in the time in which it was written. All right, And the reader must acknowledge and understand that before 
they're ever even going to fully understand what the passage means or if there is ever going to be any meaningful application for Scripture in your life. If you don't understand uh, the circumstances under which it was written and the culture in which it was written, then you're going to have a really hard time understanding what it means. And then the grammatical refers to the use of language in a way that any normal person would use grammar and language in communicating with one another. So the meaning of the passage is determined uh, determined using the well-established dictates of human language and communication and how they use the language in their day. The grammatical historical hermeneutic is absolutely vital for the church. It keeps us in the flow of that channel of divinely inspired truth. With a proper hermeneutic, we can study Scripture with confidence. You and I can hold God's Word in our hands. We can learn how to properly study it. And then we can have confidence that we're honoring God and His Word and protecting it for future generations who come along just like those in the past who actually were faced with the decision to lay down their life in order to protect the truth. You and I may not be asked to do that, but at least we can hold to a proper hermeneutic and protect the truth of God's Word for future generations. Amen? So as bright, at Bright Star, as much as we possibly can, I want to strive to be diligent in this area and keep in line with the gospel according to Christ and the apostles and truly understand how to rightly divide Scripture in an accurate manner in order to honor God. I want you to look at the, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia. Galatians 1, 6-9 says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not just another account, but there are some of you, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now notice that in this passage, he is obliterating the idea of human experience. He's obliterating the idea of human experience. He's saying there is now a standard And if anyone tries to move you away from that standard, that which has been delivered to you, even if it's me, Paul, even if I come back to you and say, no, 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 I was wrong, let me be accursed. He says, even if an angel shows up, do you know how many false religions are out there uh, because somebody had an experience with an angel or some being that gave them some divine truth? Paul's making a, a very important case here to stay away from the experiential idea of revelation from God. He's already given us his word. And he says, if anybody comes to you, if me or an angel or anybody else comes to you and tells you something other than what we've already delivered to you, you need to reject what they say and reject them. Get them out of the body of Christ in order to protect others. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, Paul voices his concerns this way. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. You see, 
The apostles' doctrine is our standard. It's the written word of God. As I said, the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. And in no uncertain terms, Paul warns that deserting the standard of Scripture will lead many in the visible church in the wrong direction and eventually into deception, to a lack of restraint, and things get completely out of control. And the mistake that I see more parents make, more uh, churches make, more families make, is that they think that the little things that they're allowing, these little piddly things right now that they're allowing, don't mean anything, that it's not a big deal. But then down the road, 10 years, 15 years, you realize that some of the decisions I made back here actually made huge, uh, had huge consequences down the road. And that's what we have to understand, is we're all bent that way. So we need to hold the line now, okay? So we saw this take place historically in the Catholic religious system. In the first several centuries, the early church veered away from apostolic doctrine and eventually they remained outside of biblical doctrine, like way, way, way out in left field. They were, as Paul said, corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In fact, in 380 AD, Christianity was declared the religion of the state and essentially the church unified with the government, which is always a bad idea, right? We, we understand the separation of church and state, and they use it, uh, our, I would say the political opponents use it in a way that doesn't have anything to do with what this is talking about. What it's saying is the church and government should never be bound together because that's too much power, too much temptation for them to manipulate the people. All right. So um, the result of this was that there was a huge number of false converts almost overnight that just came into the church because um, they believed that they were Christians because the law said so. Because the, the emperor said, hey, Christianity is now going to be the religion of the state. And they all confessed and converted, and there you go. Easy believism. If that's not easy believism, I don't know what is. So... Church doctrine was changed over time for various reasons. In order to keep a large mass of people under the control of the church, in order for leadership to retain their power and wealth, in order to amass more wealth, because the more wealth, the more influence, the more influence, the more power, and the more power, the more control over the people. And then also to incentivize the crusades and build these huge palatial uh, buildings, this new archi uh, architecture that you you often see beautiful buildings, but but what's interesting is they got all of the money and, the, and everything from a lot of the poor people in order to build those huge, thing, huge buildings. For very selfish and fleshly reasons, the church had veered so far away from biblical doctrine that they ceased being the true church. It got so bad that the gospel was so unclear and they veered so far left field that, that the visible church... The Catholic Church during that time was apostate. In 1054, that religious system was fragmented into two divisions. So what the Roman Catholics excommunicated uh, the, the leader of the Eastern Church, and they said, well, you can't excommunicate me. I'm going to excommunicate you. And so they then did that, and then you had these factions that took place between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church. They remain split today. But both of these religious systems in numerous ways abandoned the apostles' doctrine and biblical orthodoxy. 
And something had to change in order to get the church back on track of biblical Christianity. And as I said at the beginning, I'm giving you Cliff's notes here, so don't judge me too harshly because there's a lot of stuff I'm skipping over and missing. But let me just hit some high points here of church history. Many faithful men sounded the alarm even before Martin Luther. But it wasn't until the 1500s that that spark started a fire and the fire spread worldwide and changed everything. In God's sovereignty and divine providence in 1517, the Protestant Reformation took off when Martin Luther publicly exposed various unbiblical practices of the Catholic religious system, particularly those we call indulgences. And basically what this what indulgences were was give the church more money and uh, and you will have more latitude for sin. Uh, and then if you've got relatives or friends in purgatory, which was a, a doctrine that they held to that when you died you went to purgatory, it was kind of a, a mid a middle place before you went to heaven or hell, and that a soul was purified in purgatory, and that if you gave more money to the church, you could spring your, your friends and your family to, uh, family from purgatory. The more money you gave, then you could do that. That's, that's convenient. So Luther went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 thesis to the door. He posted at the top these words. This is the opening of, of his thesis. It says, Out of love for the truth, and from a desire to elucidate it, meaning make it clear. I love the truth, and I want to make it clear to God's people. And in the closing remarks of the thesis, he exhorted Christians to be diligent in their following of Christ and to endure the temporal trials of this world so that they would obtain a genuine salvation and enter heaven. And what he saw was a threat, was this false security that the church was giving people that if you give money or you do this or you do that, then you're saved. And he knew, according to Scripture, that was not the case. Do you understand? All right. So he says, Rather than relying on a false sense of security of salvation afforded by the payment for sinful indulgences. As Luther continued to study Scripture, he peeled back the layers of the Catholic religious system from what Scripture actually says and began to differentiate between the two. He wanted the common people of Germany to have their own copy of Scripture so that they could all study it for themselves. So he painstakingly translated the New Testament first into German and then he completed translating the Old Testament as well. And in 1534, he completed the German Bible and began to get it out to all of the people. He reformed the worship practices in the church as well in accordance with Scripture, he believed. No longer would the powerful church leaders be the gatekeepers of truth, having the only copies of the Bible for themselves, and then no longer would only the choirs or those who were supposedly qualified to sing even in the church services be able to do that, but Luther wanted the whole congregation to be able to sing. So after the Reformation, pastors were shepherds, and they began to preach the Bible, like verse by verse, to the parishioners, to the masses. And Luther compiled a hymn book by choosing only songs that were in line with Scripture. And, and guys, that's what we've done here in the last couple of years. We've looked through the various you know, worship songs that are really popular in the day and just simply asked the question, is this song biblical? 
And if it's not, we toss it aside. And if one particular group of people are putting out a whole bunch of songs that are unbiblical, we've just said we're not going to sing any of their songs. It's, it's not worth it. We want to be biblical even in the worship that we sing. So Luther did the same thing. He wrote a hymn book, or he put together a hymn book, and he wrote 23 of the songs himself, and that began to be something that churches used to worship together. And Luther was followed by many faithful men attempting to return the church to the apostles' doctrine. And it caught on like wildfire, and soon it would alter the uh, history of the church, and eventually it altered the entire world, as we see. The Reformation was a revival because it returned God's people to the truth of His Word, where before they were relying on a false religious system that masqueraded as true Christianity. And that's the scary thing, is that false sense of security that so many people could have by falling into a belief system that was false. So can we identify the abuses that came as a result of laying aside proper interpretation and abandoning the truth and then as a result being without restraint? We can. We can identify some of these. So one of them is the world in the church. Making church membership, the law changed everything. All a person had to do was confess that they were part of the church, pay lip service to Jesus, and they were in, right? And as I said earlier, that's... That's the definition of easy believism. We have our own version today. It's basically if you raise your hand and repeat a prayer, you're in, right? You've been shuffled in the gates of heaven, and we know that lordship salvation is more than that, that you have to make Jesus your Lord. Power, influence, and wealth with no accountability became the norm. Um, there was nepotism. The popes and kings would appoint family members in high positions within the church, they weren't, most of them probably weren't even saved. They weren't called, nothing. But because the king's my cousin, he's going to appoint me as the bishop of this particular parish, okay? And then there was what was called pluralism. Some of the church leaders would take more than one diocese or parish, and they would double the amount of money, double the amount of influence, double the amount of everything because they had control over various uh, parishes, And then there was what was called simony. It's buying and selling church positions. So they were wheeling and dealing uh, in order to put people in high-ranking positions within the church. I'm sure it's very obvious how um, non-biblical something like that would be. They were soft on sin. The church sold indulgences. One of the first gave incentive to anyone who went on a crusade. In exchange for, their, in exchange for going on a crusade, their sins would be forgiven even while on the crusade. So they could do all kinds of terrible things while they're out there on a crusade, but yet it was all forgiven because the church said so. And they gave them little slips of paper like receipts saying, hey, you're absolved. Go do whatever you need to do. It'll be okay. The most popular was to pay the church, as I said, to get a family member out of purgatory. So the church in that time period was supposed to be the support and pillar of the truth. Remember, that's our purpose. The support and pillar of the truth, and instead they had spiraled out of control. They took the easy road, the path of least resistance. There was very little to no accountability, especially by God's word. There was a loss of true spiritual power as the church replaced the true genuine conversion with a mandated easy believism. They veered away from God's stated purpose in scripture, and therefore there was no gospel clarity uh, the, the true means of salvation became very obscure. 
Instead of true biblical orthodox religion, which held fast to what Jesus and the apostles taught, they replaced it with man-made religion uh, to protect their own power, wealth, and influence. Did you know that Jesus dealt with the same exact thing in his day with the scribes and Pharisees? He says, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. Matter of fact, none of it is going to pass away until you see everything come to fruition. Uh, the written word in his day was not the problem. The problem was that those scribes and Pharisees had replaced the beauty of the law of God, God's instruction, with a man-made religious system. Jesus was fighting against the man-made religious system while he was in his three-year ministry. Religion is not the problem. Man-made religion is the problem. I don't know how many times I've said it myself. I don't know how many times I've heard other people say it. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. Well, it is a religion. It's the religion that he's established. The problem is you've many times we move over to a man-made religion instead of the religion that God himself, that Christ himself established for his church. Doctrine is not the problem. Doctrines of demons are the problem. And theology is not the problem. The problem are the speculations and lofty opinions of men that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, who He truly is. And boy, do we like to speculate. And we like to give our own opinions. And we veer away from what Scripture says. doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God's Word says. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How can it get more clear than that right there? He promised to build his church on that, the revealed word of God to man. His church is to be the support and pillar of that truth. And though there have been some very dark periods in history, many of which involve the abuse and manipulation by those claiming to be God's chosen men, claiming to be the men who represent God himself, there was many, many abuses, but by the grace and providence of God in the Reformation, the body of Christ returned to the God-given standard of truth. And we communicate it in the five solas. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Our common confession, our accepted doctrine and practice realigned with the historical first century church but was that the church's happily ever after did they get it right and it's been good ever since are we a part of an enlightened period of church history where Christianity has got everything right or do we have the courage to look within the walls of those that claim to be Christendom today and ask very hard questions do we currently see modern day pastors promoting themselves as celebrities in order to build huge congregations or gain a worldwide following of influence? Are there church leaders today that have gained power and wealth with no real accountability, no biblical doctrinal accountability? Are there those today living in luxury off the patronage of their followers? And have, have they amassed that wealth through manipulation, using fear and guilt or empty promises to encourage people to give under compulsion? Are there those who have abandoned a sound biblical hermeneutic to teach their own version of the truth, their own revelation, a more attractive gospel, palatable gospel? 
Are there leaders who push an experiential religious system, high on emotion, low on biblical devotion? Don't think, feel, turn your brain off and let the Spirit speak. Really? Are there those that encourage people to abandon biblical truth by labeling anyone with a disciplined doctrine or sound theology as having a religious spirit? Are there church leaders who are soft on sin, who have twisted scripture to accommodate the nature of the world, to make the local church a place where sinners can feel accepted and comfortable in their continued rebellious sinful lifestyles? All because we want to grow bigger congregations or bring in more money? And they do all of this, all of this in the name of Jesus. Or they claim that it's done in the power of the Spirit. That this is, of course, the fruit of following Christ. And they are not preaching a true gospel. They're not preaching a true gospel. I believe we know the answers to all of these questions. And I believe that we should pray for the church at large that we would return to a biblical Christianity. And we are desperate in this country for a new reformation. For God's people to rise up and hold to biblical truth no matter what. And I want to begin there next week.